Hi everyone, we are back for round two of the <laughs> Activation Project podcast. How are you guys doing today? I hope your week has been amazing and that this is hitting you right at the perfect time, smack center in the middle of the week so you can just change your whole week around if you need to or maybe just use it to propel you upwards, continuing upwards. We hope that this fills you, inspires you, helps you to heal, helps you to search, helps you to open up, causes a little brain bomb in your head to help you to get through some blocks or anything like that. We have some things we want to talk about today. First off is a lot of times when people start their inner journey, they ask themselves like, how did I get here? I feel very far from where I've been. I know that's the question that I asked myself on my inner journey. One thing that people have to know is that we are the sum total of all of our beliefs, values, and decisions in our life, which means we cause all of those things to happen to us. As you know, we do the best of what we can with the resources that we have available and that there are no unresourceful people, there's just unresourceful states. So I can just not know how to get what I need, but all of the things that we want and need are just right out there. And sometimes they're beyond our reach because we are at the result and inside the problem. So when I have a problem, I'm not looking outside of myself for the things to help me get past what I'm doing. I'm focused right here with my problem right here on my nice little pedestal, making the excuses for not moving past it and uh, getting the life that I want to. Now I did this a lot. It was my trauma was something that I used to keep people connected to me. So if I were to tell you all these horrible things that happened to me as a child, you're less likely to leave me, right? You feel bad for me, you don't wanna hurt me. And I would make people think that they were doing things for me out of their own free will when I knew that I was manipulating them by telling them certain stories and using them to get my needs met because that was the only way that I knew. And it wasn't until I took a really hard look at myself, which I resisted tremendously for a really long time to actually see my fault and that just because the trauma happened to me that I couldn't stay in the result of that, that I had to actually move past that and take ownership of it and take ownership of my healing. That's what I did is I took ownership of it. And now I don't really talk about like the things that happened to me for you know people to feel sorry for me. I talk about it because I wanna tell people the process by which I integrated all those things in my life and how I can now stand in front of someone and say, hey, I used people. I was a people pleaser. I got my needs met through hidden ways. I'm okay saying that out loud now. I was a spider and I would weave you right into my web and people, thought that they were doing good for me when I was just manipulating them. So were you like Charlotte from Charlotte's Web? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I guess I had a couple of Templetons that I told to go out to get me stuff, you know, and, you know, maybe a little. She was a little nicer than I was, though. Who were you more like? I was Scarlett O'Hara, moving from one person to the next that could meet my needs. And as she said, I will never go hungry again. I said I will never waitress or bartend again. <laughs> 
God forbid. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, giving up waitressing was the best thing that I've ever did. Yeah, so would you say that you then lacked modeling as far as being resourceful came? We talked about this last time that you were sort of forced to constantly be in an empathetic state, which I would argue is a resourceful state because you're using your ability and your intuition to perceive other people's feelings in order to get your needs met, which I think that's one of the most resourceful ways you can be because you're literally lacking any physical source except for what you have inside of you. It did build my intuition. I say that's my superpower now and I thank my trauma for giving me that hypersensitivity. And I see that, you know, I was told that we are financially challenged and that I didn't deserve things. My mom would take my money and tell me she was putting it in a bank account and that she was gonna put a dollar in every single time. And I never got that. So my thoughts around money, my thoughts around relationship, my mom stayed the mom that took me, I was I was taken as a toddler. The mom who took me, she did all these insane things. I can't even begin to, I mean, I'm gonna have to tell my story at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, definitely, <laughs> next month. <laughs> next month, yes, next month I'll be telling a little bit about myself. She made it really hard for me to get things outside of myself. So I had to always look within and use my brain and my smarts and my knowledge to get those things. But after I left home without the modeling around relationship, I mean, she stayed with a man that sexually abused my sisters and I and stayed with him and is still with him to this day. And instead of leaving him, she sent us to live with her mom. I mean, I have never ever seen a healthy relationship ever in my life, not even on TV. That wasn't something that I knew. So all of my life I've been chasing what that means. And I actually had to figure it out on my own, what a healthy relationship looks like. Yeah, that's beautiful. I mean, it was the same thing for me. That's why like, you know, I made it a priority for myself to really create the ideal, you know, modeling for people and for couples you know that we can look up to and model after and so every monday i post a post for motivational couples just like these different couples that inspire me and help to give me a vision of what i want to create and manifest and bring into my life because without a vision the people perish and that's one thing that i have to say that i am so thankful for in these last two years you know once i opened up my heart and then i started dating on the rampage is that I just had like five or six heartbreaks every goddamn year. <laughs> and it's, <laughs> he's the one, he's the one. Okay, not the one. Uh, <laughs> let me look again. <laughs> but the reason why I had to go through that, it was kind of like the difference between training in wartime and training in peacetime. When you're training in wartime, everything is expedited. Everything is heightened. You are learning everything so much quicker because you're actually doing it in real time. It's an experiential training. So that's what was happening with me because I had just been like, okay, universe, I'm ready to get married. Give me whoever you want to bring me. And that's exactly what he did. Or the universe did. She, he, uh, it, they. (laughs) (laughs) So every single relationship that I had, each one narrowed my desire so that I could get more and more specific 
about the person that I wanted to be with. And so each one, it was like, okay, I want that. Okay, it's closer. Okay, but then I don't also want that. And then, you know, something that Christina really, really helps me with is like, how can we move towards what we want instead of away from what we don't want? So instead of talking about what it is that we don't want in a relationship, describing specifically the aspects that we do want, especially when it comes to the way that we want to feel. And I think it's important to know your love language. I know mine is words of affirmation and touch. I need those two at the forefront. I need them while I'm having sex. I need them just throughout the day. I need to be reminded that you love me. I need to be reminded that you think I'm beautiful because it's a reassurance that I crave and it makes me feel safe. So it can come from friends, families, lovers, whoever, but I know I'm very solid on the fact that those are what I need. So that being said, last year around this time, and just to go back to the resourceful part, like my mother was a single mom. And after a certain point, we started moving around like every six months. So we had to ask people to donate everything from hotels to gas to mechanics. We kept getting kicked out of homes and voted out almost every six months. So then we would have to raise money to go find a new situation. And so if my mother did anything, she taught me how to be resourceful, how to have integrity, how to be, you know, kind and sweet and thoughtful and honest. I mean, she was honest except for about things that she was going through. She was probably like the epitome of spiritual and emotional bypassing because she would never talk about anything she was going through. And so of course that made it impossible for my sisters or I to open up about things that we were going through. We never talked about it. So we were just like strong, unbreakable, resilient people and me very apathetic. So around this time, it was my birthday last year, last July I went to Puerto Rico and I met this guy. He's a venture capitalist living there super cool super great guy we have this amazing connection we go to the beach with them the next day and they were like kite surfing or something and then i had to leave so he took me to the airport we promised to keep in touch and then we just kept communicating regularly he had some deal with the southwest airline to where he could just fly anywhere for free on a layover so he planned to come and visit me i picked him up in dallas and we went to houston together we spent the weekend it was really awesome i started to ask him you know a little bit about his past and his you know the pattern his previous pattern with women and what it sounded like was that the last five girls that he had dated were basically like a carbon copy of each other hot young not a lot of substance flatlander which means like one-dimensional drug or alcohol dependent codependent financially dependent all of that so you know basically some arm candy with a lot of issues and baggage so i was like interesting so here i am thinking well isn't this his lucky day <laughs> finally he's broken the pattern and i was like and i've broken the pattern as well i'm like i'm really scaling up here because one thing for me is that i have blocks around being able to receive so like as a volunteer missionary everything you're doing is for others so you don't keep your own money you don't keep your own things everything is common pot so having to move away from that mindset the same goes for monogamy because you know all my life i grew up in these sort of open relationship open marriages and sort of polyamory without the homosexuality aspect because that wasn't allowed but in this environment where it was completely accepted it was actually promoted and it was the ideal and then going from that to 
Austin, where the entire woke community is all about open as well. And so me just so desperately wanting to be with somebody who commits to building a strong foundation with me and makes me feel safe and secure and like I'm enough. Which obviously you have to have that feeling inside of yourself, right? That has to come from within, that I am enough within. And so that other people, you know, that I may connect with and partner with, you know, they're just complimentary, they're additive. So I was going through this, you know, this time just a sort of confusion and like believing that that's what I had to accept into my life. Right? I thought was the only option available to me. So he comes and visits and then he invites me to go back and visit him. We were gonna take a road trip. And before I, I went, I sort of prayed to my inner self and asked, I was like, I wanna be shown if this is the right guy, like if I should be staying with him or if I shouldn't waste my time and just maybe, you know, repurpose our relationship. And in Puerto Rico, his anger side came out. So that was revealed in a very, very, very strong way. It reminded me again of my ex in Houston who was very abusive. And it was just kind of like, oh no, like this, I can't go back to this. No, 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 no. Christina, I have a question. Do you have any examples where you just, you were open to looking for the red flag and then it just came blaring in? Yes. The deal breaker. So I, while working at Rick's, and I was new, there was a floor manager and he was very nice to me when I very first got there. And I was like, someone likes me. And we met on Halloween and started hanging out. And I could just tell that whenever a new girl would start or and there was a new stripper or something like that, that, you know, the wandering eyes. And I could tell just by body language and the way that he was and the fact that you're a manager at a strip club. I mean, that says a lot about your character in of itself. I mean, I was no better. I was working there too, but <laughs> um, I just knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that that was just not something that was going to be for me and ended that pretty quickly in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Oh, Lord. Oh, my gosh. Anyways, oh, yeah, I forgot to mention that um, in this podcast, a lot of the names are going to be bleeped out and some of the names will just have changed just for privacy sake. Yeah. So then basically Jeffrey like reached out to me after he listened to my podcast. He was like, OK, I understand what you're saying about how like I keep attracting the same women, like the same carbon copy. And he's like, but at the same time, you and I, we attracted each other as well. So there must have been something that was matching within us, too. And I was like, oh, yeah, I figured that out later. <laughs> I was like, no, nope, still there, still right there. And he's like, but I just don't understand how you coming out and talking about your whole sexual history is going to stop you from breaking the pattern. So like, how does that relate or how can that help me, for instance? And I said, well, that's why it's very important to understand the ACE, first of all, and understand all of the different factors that cause trauma in kids and how it imprints on your epigenetics and on your DNA and is passed down unless somebody is educated and they understand what it is that causes trauma in children and how to stop it. So in our last episode, we kind of threw out some statistics there which weren't entirely accurate. So I would love for you guys to go to www.activationproject.com. Mark Twain said there's statistics, more statistics. What did he say? That there's lies? <laughs> there's lies, something like that. 
Anyway, statistics, there's lots of them, but for the most part, what we know so far is like 87% of people have scored a one or above. So the chances that your life have been touched by trauma are pretty, pretty high. Uh, the range of where how it affects you is different, and that's why we are here, because we wanna show you guys how to be able to process through that. We wanna show you and shine light onto how it's affecting you and manifesting in your life. And so that's what I told him. I was like, well, for me, a lot of my trauma centered around sex, abandonment, etc. So how did that manifest in my life? It manifests through massive amounts of promiscuity, using my body and my sex to get what I needed to survive. You know, once again, like that was the resource that I had that I felt was available to me. Like that was the only thing I thought that I was worth. And so I gave it to whoever would ask it and whoever wouldn't ask it. You know, sometimes I would just come in and take. I would become a predator when I was operating via Oevalia slash Olovlia now. Okay, I'm gonna quickly go over the intro here. So right now I'm talking about how I had just come back from running away at 15 in Guatemala. And I had to go through the six month process of rejoining. At that time I was able to have sex, so, but only to up till age 20. So I started hooking up with some of the family guys, not impressed, did not like it. It was ugh. And then there was this older guy in the home who was always hitting on me and you know, I was flattered by it because I was kind of attracted to him and I felt like he was actually kind of like courting me or like giving me words of affirmation, which once again was my love language. So I liked it. I didn't think it was really cool because he was older. He was like in his mid to late 20s and or like 25, 26. And so it wasn't allowed, but we just kept pushing the line. You know, he'd come in behind me in the kitchen and maybe like grab my ass or give me an extra long hug, you know, stuff like that. And then one time we were at a beach house, I was riding behind him on a four wheeler. I had my arms around his, his waist, like over his pants, but on his dick. And I kind of just like held it. And I think we may or may not have like kissed a little bit. And that was it. The next day he goes straight to the shepherds with his guilty conscience and his wife and tells them what had happened. Boom, I'm sentenced to another six months of probation. And then, so after I finished that, I'm like, I'm out of here, I can't stay, too many bad memories. So I take off to a situation in Mexico and run into a very similar problem. So there is this guy that worked in, a, in the service home or he lived in the service home with all of the shepherds. And he was married, he was having some marital issues. So he was like, oh, Olivia, can I just give you a massage and we can talk? And I was like, sure. He was basically massaging my back with his tears and then at one point he was like turn over so I turned over and he started massaging my boobs just that again a little massage of the boobs and he heads straight for the shepherds first thing in the morning and boom I'm on six months of probation again <laughs> so I was like okay so that's where the story starts so enjoy we will be back at the end with a little bit more commentary i hope you guys love it talk to you soon to set a clear intention stated in positives i would like to connect back to different experiences that i've had in my life that have shaped me and maybe have caused some you know blockages in my life or old wounds maybe that I've suppressed and just going back reframing and healing them. So there's like a dichotomy within me 
And just to go back to that story, what ended up happening, I still find it very hard to say no. And I remember the time in my life when I felt able to say no, to turn away advances and stuff like that. It was like right after I'd broken up and I just had this hatred for like sleazy guys and just like douchebags. And I was just like, fuck all of you guys, you know, like, no. But that kind of went away with time. And so, yeah, I mean, I knew that that was probably not the right thing to be doing, but he was the adult and he was asking me to do it. And so I was like, okay, same thing happens next day. He's feeling all guilty, goes straight to like one of the main leaders of all of Mexico because she lived there. All of the big leaders lived at that service center. Next thing I know, they're like asking to talk to me. And technically it wasn't against the rules, but because it was a gray area, I was going to get put on probation for another six months. And that was just kind of the way that it was looked at in the family. It was like, you're the girl, you're the temptress. You know what you're doing to these guys. You know what you were doing when you took off your shirt and let him touch your boobs. They can only help themselves so much. You're the one responsible for listing that or any feeling within them. So coming from a place of I'm the one at fault because I'm the girl and I'm sexual and I'm the one getting myself into trouble. There's Olivia, that troublemaker. So the dichotomy between wanting to feel okay with my sexuality, like I can express it and explore, but then also fighting the stigma of being a slut and a whore and judging myself like that. Yeah, it's like a dichotomy within me and I feel like it's probably something that a lot of women go through. So having left the family and being like, fuck you, like I can do whatever I want. And then, I don't know, just hiding that part of me. But then more recently getting to a place where I'm like, I don't have to be ashamed of that. I don't know, as far as that goes, there is like a big divide in me. What did you get from Guatemala and Mexico City? That doesn't seem like a small task. Well, I could have gone anywhere in the world and that particular home that agreed to let me move there was, I was a perfect candidate, a young girl that they could tell what to do because they just wanted extra bodies for their task force, which is what most of the homes wanted. You know, the young people, we were the ones that did all the work, so. Like when you say task force, that's the recruiting stuff you're talking about? The task force in that particular home was going out with a can to stop lights and asking for money every day. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah an able-bodied person that could go fundraise and make money. And just for me, like when you say the family, is there feelings of familial bonds there with your family or like I had cousins but it seems like that line's kind of blurred and like everyone was just so I understand it you're going with no affiliations to a different country without your sisters without your mom without anyone you ever met right that's how it was in the family like you could move anywhere in the world to another home you just had to contact them they had to vote on it and if they agreed so Did like mom know that you were yeah because I was living in another home I mean I was telling her about my plan and I was just kind of like look I need to get out of Guatemala because that whole thing that happened with Elias it was very awkward all of a sudden I went from being this like top shiner subscriber of Activated and having made this huge revolution in Guatemala with all the young people to being looked at like a homewrecker and a parasite because of what happened which is him grabbing my hand for the last day. And I just that was in Guatemala and that means you go to Mexico City. After I had already done the six months of rejoining, okay, so it takes six months to rejoin the family because you have to go through like the whole like STD testing and babe status. 
where you do a lot of reading, oh, no so like, sex. Like well, no, because I had left the family room. I ran yeah. away. So when I came back, that I had to go through that six-month process, which I did. And I was really on fire. Those were the stories I told you when I would go out and we would meet. And I had all these incredible things happening. Then I got off of probation. So I was allowed to like have sex with people again in the family that were closer to my age. It's like they encourage you to have sex with the young boys, but also on the same token, kind of condemned you for over-sexuality. So it was like we were there to like help the boys fulfill their needs kind of thing. And the two guys that boys that were like around my age, I had sex with it was just awful. Like there were these date nights that had to be like scheduled and arranged and all the adults had to know about it from my home and from their home. And then they would set up an area for it to happen. Like they oh had God. like a motor home. Okay. Everyone business at that point? Oh yeah, everybody knows. Oh. And so it was with this boy and it was horrible. It was like Jack Hammer and I was just like being there and I was like, oh my God. And at this point I had already had sex. So I told you the story about like how I got virginized. This is after I had come back from running away. So when I ran away, I ran away with this guy that I had met. He really liked me and I moved in with him and his mom to start out just so that I could like make money and start working. And I started working at a bar with him. I was 15 and he helped me to get like fake papers and stuff like that, you know, say I could work. Like he really, he cared about me. He was trying to take care of me. The whole situation kind of reminded me of Requiem for a Dream. Remember his mom with the weird diet pills? Like that was the kind of like spirit that I was in, you know, just, I had never been in that type of situation before. I'd been very like sheltered in the family. So, at times I was, I mean, I just, it was uncomfortable. Like it was weird, it was foreign, but I was so determined that I wanted to do my own thing and be independent. So then I was working at this bar, of course, like he had friends come, you know, and bring drugs. That was like the first time I tried ecstasy. And I ended up one night, so we had this boss who, I think he was kind of like Indian or something like that. He was mine and his manager or boss, he was the owner of the bar. I don't know what happened, but one night he suggested that we all go to an auto hotel so that they could like have a threesome with me. And I don't really remember like if I really wanted to do it or if I just kind of felt like I should because he was our boss. And I think he didn't really want to do it, but I think he kind of felt like he was in the same position. That was the starting point. Going through these experiences and just kind of like having to push it down like the next day and just be like, that was normal. I'm normal. This is normal. This is fine. I can handle this. Another night, I was with and then all of his friends. I think there must have been like eight or nine of them. And we were all at one of their houses. Like to this day, it's really hard for me to listen to Pink Floyd music. I don't know what we had taken probably as an ecstasy or something like that. And next thing I know, they're all surrounding me their dicks out, their tiny little dicks, fucking little Guatemalan boys. It's like none of them attractive, none of them like anything that I would like ever go for. But it was just me there. And they were playing Pink Floyd and I just, they wanted me just to like give them all fucking blowjobs or whatever. 
And at one point I was just like, I can't do this. I went inside the room with one of them who I felt like the safest with, you know, and I was like, I'll have sex with you, but just you, you know. And he was like, okay, yeah, like he'd rather he get some than, you know, at least if he could get some, you know. So that's how that night ended up. Another time I had a really like rich customer and it's like these things happen and then it's the same. The next day I'm just like, oh my God, I don't even want to think about that. You know, like gonna forget that that ever happened. And honestly, like I have forgotten that a lot of these things have happened until recently remembering them because I just never wanted to remember it. I had this rich customer who invited me to go to the beach with him. And I thought that that was exciting on his like nice BMW. So we went there and we went to his like beach house and I just didn't really like him that much. I didn't, I wasn't attracted to him, you know, but I just kind of wanted to go and like have fun. But of course, you know, you're there, you're drinking, they're doing all of this stuff for you. So they're like, you owe me something. And then it was just another thing like, oh, I guess I do. I don't have any, like, what am I going to say? No. And then around that time, like, I just had another best friend named And him and I became really, really good friends. And at one point, like, he was like, I really love you. Like, I want to be together with you. And I had my own apartment at that point. And so he moved in with me. But he had, like, coke issues and stuff and rage issues. And we had this really, like, crazy, crazy relationship. And during this time, I was, like, shot at. We were almost killed outside of a strip club one night. We came really close to being killed. Our friend owned the strip club. It was called Cats. And we were would just go there and hang out with him. Everybody there has guns. So if you have money, you're gonna have guns, bodyguards. So we left the club to go to the little like convenience store outside. And we just went there to go get some snacks. And we had to walk along a chain fence and there was cars lined up against the fence. So we were walking in between. And that area was sort of dark and there was a bright light shining onto the nightclub. And then there was a bright light shining onto the convenience store. So we went there and as we're coming back, we're walking in between the fence and the cars and we see this guy come out of the club, drunk, cursing, waving a gun around and start shooting. And so we kind of like freeze, but we make a noise, hears us. So it gets all paranoid. So he starts shooting the gun in, at our direction. So we hit the ground and we crawl underneath one of the cars and he's still like, you know, yelling and stuff. Like, so he starts shooting the ground and as he's walking towards us to our car and we're just seeing the bullets ricocheting and we're seeing his footsteps getting closer and closer and my heart is racing and I've never prayed. Like I hadn't prayed at all since I had left. So I was just like, I don't know, I don't believe in that shit. But I was like, oh my God, like just with everything in my being, like God protect me, like save us, save us, save us. And then right then his bodyguard and driver pull up and they're like yelling. They're like, the cops are coming, get in. And they grab him and they pull him in. He was like one car away from us. So we crawl out, like shaking, freaking out, lots of stuff like that. So then that's the whole reason why I ended up going back to the family was because I felt like so lost and I loved him. I was like, I can handle this. I'm fine. Like, I don't have a problem. Like, I'm good. I've already been in family. Like, that's not me, but I definitely think that they could help him. So that's, you know, I ended up bringing him back to the family and had that whole experience and decided to stay and he even tried to join the family for a while because he really loved me and wanted to be with me but ultimately he couldn't stay or whatever so then i came back to the family i never told anybody those things just to line it up for my timeline 
you left and it's a year and a half. It was like six months. Six months of chaos, right? Okay. Absolute chaos. Do you think that there was more incidents that you don't remember? Or do you think that, not that that's not enough on its own, but... One very vivid memory that comes back that was quite scary for me was that we ended up in like some weird house, some after party. And I think people were doing like crack. And there was this big guy and I would, we were sleeping him and me on the cold floor, like on a hard cement floor in a room. There was nothing there, just like dirty clothes. And somebody started banging on the door. Like the guy knew that I was in there kind of thing. And he ended up breaking down the door and it came crashing down. And I had to like jump up and fight him out of there. But it was just like constant feelings of just like not being safe and feeling like in order to survive, I had to give myself to these people. And then, you know, coming back to the family, not having any choice of who I got to be with and seeing as sex is like a way to like get help other somebody else, you know, get their needs met. There was no romance or even almost attraction there. It was like more arranged from what you're saying? Just... Yeah, kind of, exactly, yeah. Kind of, yeah. It's kind of hard to explain because it's like there was an element of like, okay, who do you like or something like that. But like, I don't know why I had sex with Gabe. I didn't like him. And the sex was freaking horrible. And then the afterwards, you're just kind of like, uh, okay, yeah, like, why did I even do that? And then actually, so this family moved to Guatemala, Michael and Joy, who they're, I'm very, very close to them. They're like my second parents. They're amazing. I got together with their son. He was 17. We liked each other. But then I went to the States because my sister Tate was having Kindle. And while I was there, his parents contacted me and said that he was leaving the family. And he was super sad and, you know, he didn't want to tell me. We were just both really crying and it was really hard for me. You didn't get any more information than that? So he just couldn't be in the family. Like, he was too, like, me, how I was before. You know, he wanted freedom. He wanted to go do a shit. He didn't want to be a missionary anymore, which was a really common story. But at that point, I was already super dedicated and committed. And I knew that that was my life's calling. So I knew that was goodbye. Mm -hmm. And so he left. I don't think I got to say goodbye to him. Oh, you guys I think it was just like another like six months or something like that. You Oh yeah, like I definitely loved him and it was really, really hard because I cared about him, you know. But I was so much more committed to like my higher calling and my purpose that it was kind of like this is hard, but it's what has to happen because I need to stay on my journey. Yeah, so those are like some of the main times that I remember. And then as far as like my first sexual like interactions, I remember this one time we were living in San Antonio in a big home and I was riding in the back of the van and my mom and another adult were in the van. And for some reason we were picking up some big donated mattresses. So the mattresses were like taking up all of the space in the back. So like you couldn't see me and this other little boy. And the little boy like pulled down his pants and was like, pull down your pants. And like, I just remember being back there and just feeling like really like dirty and like, but also not being able to say like, no. I went through like a very shy period until I was like 14 or 15 and then I was finally like, fuck this. So then I get put on probation for, okay, finally I'm finished with the six months probation. I'm like, I'm out of here, I'm going to Mexico. Go to Mexico, end up in this super corrupt situation, end up getting put on probation again because of that situation with, and I'm just like, 
what the fuck am I doing? So that was when Claudia was getting beat up by her dad and I was like, I'm going to fix this. Like, this isn't how the family is supposed to be. I'm going to open up a home that is based on all the morals and the principles that the family should be on. So there was a home in Chicago that would let missionaries come from all over the world, go there and fundraise to open up a home or to support themselves. So I got on a bus. I lowered my status because you have to be a part of a home to maintain your FD family discipleship status, which is at the top. You're not a part of a home for like a certain amount of time, kind of like if you don't park your license, like your insurance license with a firm, it expires in like six months or whatever, something like that. So I got on a bus and I went to Chicago by myself. I was 17. It took me three days from Mexico City there because I was just always super ballsy and brave. I was say, you sound fearless. <laughs> I don't even know how I had enough money to do that, to be honest. Did you learn from your mom to... Well, I learned strength and independence from my mom. I mean, my mom was a single mom our whole lives, taking us all over the world on faith, you know? And I know that that was a huge part of it. Yeah, and I had already been on my own. So I got on a bus, I went up there, I started fundraising, started like making more money than ever. Thousands of dollars for this home. This is 17, 18? 17. Okay. I was about to be 18, but I wasn't 18 yet. And then I get a letter from... And she's like, hey, Olivia, she was together with this guy named and I had told him the whole situation. I was like, we have to get the situation. We need to just open up a home, you know, because he was also very idealistic. He has like a PhD in religion and they're married now. But they were supposed to join the team, him and his friend. And they all wrote me at once and were like, he was backing out. She can't go against her family. So we're going to have to figure out something else where you know, we can't do it. So here I am in Chicago. I'm 17. I Now I'm FM which means that if I have to rejoin the family, I'm gonna to have to go through another six months. I have like thousands of dollars. Is there any other ties to being demoted to your ability for safety or is it just like a class intellectual? It's a level of commitment. Okay. What do you mean by safety? Well, I don't know, do like the higher members, do they get a bigger serving of porridge or their own room? Or I, you know, I don't know no. anything about uh, it. If you're like a spiritual leader, if you're one of the shepherds, Okay, at a high, high level, but basically everyone's taken care of. It's The statuses are purely levels of commitment. So if you're at the highest level of commitment, you don't have a secular job, you don't go to school, you're completely outside of the system. You're completely okay. yeah. autonomous in your home. The lower levels of status, because there's people that couldn't commit to the family full-time because of whatever reason, health issues, whatever it was, but they still wanted to be a part of the family. That was a way that they could be a part of it. They could still get the word out message, but they didn't have to live in a home. They could live in a single family home. A lot of families that had trouble teenagers, you know, like, and that is why I ran away because I knew that if I had told my mom at 15 in Guatemala, I don't want to be in the family anymore, she would have had to bless the family with me. Oh, is that right? Yeah. They kicked the mom out? Well, yeah, because like, she's my guardian. I can't, you know, she would have had to take me out of the family. So in my adolescent brain, I'm like, this is going to be the best thing for everybody. My mom is really happy here. I want her to keep being a missionary. I'll just go take care of myself. And I had seen my older sister leave as well. My sister, you know, she had struggled with the adults and then she ended up leaving at 17 and she was my role model. She was my best friend. Everything she liked, I liked. I followed her. You know, I would just want to follow in her footsteps. You know? What was the age difference? Four. Four years, yeah. Between all three of us. Four I ran away right before my sister's birthday, Emily's. 
I bet I'm like, there's so much. Um, my mom lost 10 pounds in two days. She wouldn't eat. She was just standing out the window because the adults wouldn't let her contact the police to find me because they didn't want to attract any attention to us. So I was expecting people to come break down the door where I was, like, looking for me. But nobody ever came looking. They didn't know. They had no idea where I was. But the shepherds of the home advised my mom to not do anything. All of the family homes, we were kind of there illegally. Like we had to go renew our visas every three months and it was always an ordeal, like, because we were on tourist visas. So we weren't supposed to have been there for eight, nine years. So they, the what less attention, American. Everybody there were American citizens. You know you were born as an expat or? Even though I was born in Ecuador, yeah, because yeah. my mom was American. Okay. Yeah, because we moved back to States when I was like six months and I got my citizenship and all of that. So yeah, that's why like I ran away. So then I'm at a loss of what to do because I'm in Chicago and I don't want to go back to Guatemala because I felt like going back. I applied to this home in Mozambique in Africa and they accepted me, but they said that they needed me because of the way the visas are over there. Like they want you, if you're going to join the home to commit to a year. So I was taking that into consideration, like, am I ready to go to Africa and come in a year? I decided while I was waiting to visit my grandma and kind of just like hang out there. And that's where I turned 18. And I got a job working at this pizza place called Pizza Palace with this guy named who was the owner. And I guess that's just kind of how I've always seen, like, I've had that relationship with older men and me, like, you know, I always had this sort of like knowledge about the power that I have as far as myself goes. Like when I was 15, when I ran away, it's almost like uh, this feeling of like this power of seduction where I knew like I would be working at the bar and if I would see somebody that I was attracted to, I just, I had this feeling like all I have to do is get them to turn around and look at me mm -hmm. and make eye contact with me and game over. <laughs> and I really like to exercise that power and control. So when I rejoined the family, the adults were all giving me the side eye, you know, because they had put up with me for like, well, we moved to Guatemala when I was like 13 and I was the trouble teenager. I was the ringleader. And so when I came back all converted and on fire, they were like, that's great. But is it also one of her tricks? You know, like, what is she really yeah, up to? Basically, that they were really thinking that? Oh, yeah. I put them through the fucking finger. I mean, I ran away. You know, like imagine what that did to all the other young people. They were all wanting to do the same thing. I mean, I just really misbehaved. And so... In an environment like that, I don't think it really encourages... Yeah. ...compliance with any behavior. Yeah, right. I mean, it was very strict, very like supervised. So I come back and they're like two of the SGA girls. They were like in their early 20s and they were the shepherds. And they told me, hey, Olivia, you know, like, we need to talk to you. Um, this is when I've only been back for a couple months. And they're like, you know, we're, let's pray. Let's get some prophecies for you. Something that was really common in prophecies were, were visions. Uh -huh. So sort of like spirit visions or whatever. So we start praying. And Robin, she's like, okay. So she starts getting this vision. And she's like, all right, I see you. And I see this woman. Her name is Bedazzle. She has long fingernails and she has her grasp on you. And basically what she was seeing was a demon of seduction that I was being sort of influenced by or possessed by. So really early on, they were letting me know that like I had this 
spirit of seduction that was following me around. So that's something that was kind of like, okay, in my psyche. It's kind of weird because it's not something that I could actually negate because I felt that power within me. I didn't know what to think. I'm like, okay, great. They're my spiritual leaders, my shepherds are telling me I need to get rid of this. So I wanted to pray against it. But I guess what that made me feel was like, I should be ashamed of that part of me. I shouldn't let that come out, you know, especially because I'm 16, 15, 16, you know? So telling me, you know, that's wrong. That part of me is wrong. And then, of course, you know, these other things happen. So then it validates that, like, oh, there's Olivia again seducing all the older men. They just can't help themselves when they're around her. So then I ended up, I was at my grandma's for a while. And then I was like, no, I just, I miss my mom. I was like, I'm going to go to Guatemala and just go visit them and figure out what to do. So I went there and I brought all this money that I had, which I've always been super generous. You know, so I took my mom and sisters and we went to Pana Hotel in Guatemala to go on this nice little trip. I bought like this nice hotel and immediately the adults that my mom lived with who brought my older sister a lot of grief. Who, really looking back, I mean, they really took advantage of my mother because my mom was the only one who had, like, finances. Like, she had money coming in every month. She had from, like, the government and also from his dad. He sent us money every month for, like, child support. Was she on disability or something? No, I think it was just, like, income tax, I guess, maybe? Or, like, because she didn't work, but she would get money every... Yeah, single mom below the poverty line. Something like that, yeah. So, but all of that they would take. They would always buy stuff because they were the shepherds. And my mom was never a shepherd. They never made her a shepherd. Because it was all voting. And they were a mom and pop shop as well. Big time. And they would when send... It's when, like, there's a couple. Yes. And they make all the decisions for the home, even though it's supposed to be a democracy and everything's supposed to be voted okay, on. Okay, okay, okay. It's not like there's an imbalance of power. Gotcha. So, and my mom was always very docile and very just like, okay, yeah, whatever you guys say, you know, I trust you. The Lord's working through you. You're the shepherd. So yes, yes, yes. And they're confiscating her monies. And they would distribute however they wanted. We never could get any like special things, but their kids could, you know, stuff uh, like that. That's very, that's really weird. And so I think that that's when resentment started to build up with my mom, because like there were a lot of times when I felt like she didn't protect she tried her best. Like, she would always try to, like, get us special things. So she would teach all week, the kids. And then on the weekend, every single weekend, she would go to Costco with another aunt, single mom. And they would make balloons and face paint Friday, Saturday, Sunday, all day long at Costco to make more money. Meanwhile, never did any of the fundraising or the hard work. They would just go and do the provisioning and hobnob with the contacts and stuff like that. So I guess there's probably a lot of resentment there. And I know with my sister, like she has so much bitterness towards, because I convinced her to come rejoin the family during that time when she had just had Kindle. I was like, come back. I was convincing so many people to come back to the family. Like I really like, when I get fired up about something, that's my skill, you know, I can light a fire under other people as well. So she rejoined. And at the end of the six months, they told her that she wasn't family material. When you finish your six months, then you can get voted into FD status or you can get voted not into FD status. Okay, so that's what I was asking before. So when you're talking about going back down, you're basically on the edge of, I mean, uncertainty. Mm -hmm. So there's no guarantee. Mm -mm. So you may be getting food for six months, but you don't know at the end. Right. So they can vote you no. Know. That's they really can, powerful. Yeah, they can tell you no, and that's what they ended up doing with her. 
and they told her that they didn't want her in the home. And she was a single mom, just Kendall as a baby. That's gotta be enraging and terrifying. Especially because she had left her whole life in the U.S. and, sure. and moved there. There's, so There's a lot of her there. connection with generations of your mom, her, and her daughter. So experienced something very differently. They loved it. It was like their little golden daughter. Like she was like their other daughter. So they treated her just like I think that is. Their kids. Ah, she was good, sweet, quiet. She was best friends with their kid daughters. I was best friends with their daughter too, but I was much more outspoken and rebellious and loud and wasn't like that. She was like the youngest. She was quiet. She was she sweet, was you know. And yeah. So she had a very different experience with them. And you know, I'm still like connected with all of them and they still are in Guatemala doing missionary work and they've asked me for donations and I've sent it to them and went found out about that, she lost her shit. She was like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, how could you do that? Wow, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of wrongs that they need to make right, you know? What ended up happening is I came back and somehow they finagled all my money out, like for me to give them all the money to the home, to them. How much money you had a bunch of It was like four or five grand. Oh, that's a lot. Yeah. At a young, at a young age, that's a fortune. Yeah. <laughs> that I had made the sweat of my brow. Yeah. Canning at the lights. Chicago. Whoa. So anyways, there I am. I'm like, okay, well, I still don't really know where I'm going to be. This team came through Mexico. They invited me to move to an act because I had told them. I had told them what had happened at... David and Claudia's in Mexico. So some of the shepherds from one of the service centers in Mexico City, they caught wind of it and they were like, let's, you know, bring her to our home. So I moved to a service center in Mexico, which is like the top shepherds, another like top shepherd location, which was different. All the service centers are supported so the people don't need to fundraise in those homes. They can just be committed to whatever, like making music, producing content. So it was all like the creative people of the family and the shepherds and stuff like that. So they wanted me there because of the work that I had done with Activated. They wanted me to start doing that in Mexico. But at this point, I just started getting like disillusioned. I didn't like the imbalance of power and how the had all of their kids taken care of. They never had to lift a finger. They never had to watch their kids. They just kind of like came and went. They were like kings and queens. Meanwhile, the rest of us, like long hours staying up all night with their kids, just like stuff like that. And it just, I was so idealistic. I had already seen a lot of the world and it just wasn't like vibing with me. And so I started to get a really like sort of negative, bad attitude. I started getting like receiving prophecies from the shepherds about me that they were giving me about how I needed to like, you know, really shape up. And so long story short, they were like, we want you to move out of the home. And I was like, I'm leaving. It's like, fuck it, I'm out of here. And how old were you about at this point? This is 18. Mm -hmm. So that's when I moved to so Austin. So they invited you back. They took your money. They treated you like- Well, that was David and in Guatemala. And then I'm, I went to Mexico. Yeah, okay. so I gave my money to a home that I didn't even live in, but I was like, you know, it's, my mom's home. You know, I felt so strong that I wanted to be a missionary and I wanted to do that. And I didn't want to be in the States for that long, but I was like, this is what I have to go, go stay with you, kind of figure out what to do. And then that's when I moved here. Shortly after I moved here was when I got raped. So I had met this guy named who to this day is the love of my life. Like we were just madly, madly in love. However, he told me in the beginning, he was like, he was from Argentina. He was here studying oil and gas just for a year. And then he was going to go to Harvard and then back to Argentina because his father owned a law firm and he was going to take over. So, I mean, I knew it was kind of short lived 
anyway, but he also told me that he had met a girl like a year before in Germany and that they had a sort of relationship and he didn't know where it was going to go, but he was still talking to her and he wanted me to know that. But we just couldn't stop ourselves. Like we fell in love, like so in love. We had this insane connection. He really just made me feel so good about myself. He loved me, but at the same time, he had this other girl. And then at one point in our, like six months into our relationship, he was like, oh, coming to visit me. And oh my God, I'm so devastated. I remember he lived at the apartments in Crossing Place, Riverside. And I remember driving there one night just to look up in the window and see if I could see anything. I was so, so upset. And then she left and he was like, resumed everything, you know, business as usual. So while I was together with him is when this thing happened with So we would go to this club called Midnight Rodeo. And I'm just like getting back into like, because it had been years since I drank, since I was 15. Back into sort of like drinking and handling alcohol. We would go country dancing and stuff. And me and my one of my best friends, we were underage. So we had a bottle of vodka in the car and we decided to like drink it before we went inside. So we got pretty drunk. We went there and then everybody ended up going back. So his parents are the ones that I lived with in Guatemala after I came back to the family. And I really loved them. I mean, I loved that experience. If it wasn't for the thing that happened with that was my happiest time in the family. It was awesome. Like they supported us so much. It really was a democracy. They let the young people vote. We ruled the home. And it was exactly how the family was supposed to be. And I loved it. So I, I cared a lot about his parents. So we were back at his house. I got drunk. I passed out on his bed. And everybody left. And they left me there. And Mary had been, like, worried because he had tried that with her, too. And she knew that he had, he had a tendency to do stuff like that. Go and, like, fuck with passed out chicks. Uh, so yeah. she was, like, telling her brother, who was his best friend, hey, like, I don't think we should leave Olivia. And they were like, ah, it's fine, fine. So I wake up in the middle of the night to like big hand fingers, like touching me. And I was together with madly in love with him. But I'm staying there, I'm laying there, I'm scared. I don't know what to do. So I don't do anything. And he ends up like fucking me. And the next morning I'm like, I wake up, you know, and I'm like, oh, just feeling super gross. I'm like, He's like, oh, let me take you to your house. I'm like, okay. So he drives me to my apartment. I get out, I throw up everywhere. I'm feeling nasty and dirty. And I just go up to the apartment. No, I don't think I told my sister, but I went over to And he's like, you need to go to the hospital right now. You need to do it right get. You need to get tested for STDs, like all of that. So he was like the voice of reason. If it wasn't for him, I never would have gone to take, like I probably could have been pregnant, who knows? So I, have to go through this whole thing, this rape kit with like, you know, all of them telling me, you know, not to prosecute, you know, and you're like, oh, he just probably did it in his sleep. He was trying to make me think like, God, like it's an actual thing. Like guys, they, they sleep and they like have sex in their sleep and they don't realize it. And that was the argument that they were trying to pull. And then there was this whole like, you know, I know his family, I don't want to ruin his life. And knowing them, they're going to think for sure it was my fault. Because they knew like that whole thing with, you know, they're like, oh, it's Olivia. Olivia, it was her fault. I'm sure that she initiated it somehow. So there was like, okay, people are not going to believe me. So I did went the car route, which made me seem even more of a fucking like, oh, she the just car? tricked him. You remember I asked, so we got him to get me a car. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. And then that whole thing happened. So basically after that, the story was just like Olivia pretended to have gotten raped so that she could get a car. 
So I had to deal with all of that. Like, you know, meantime, I'm like going through this identity crisis of not knowing what I'm doing here. And, and at the same time, I'm just like, whatever. It's just another thing, you know? It's just another person who fucking violated me with, you know, like I just never thought to be like, okay, this is wrong. It was just kind of like one thing on top of the other. Like I'm used to this, it's, you know, I'll get over it. I just won't think about it. So as you can see, up until this point, I had just like a very disproportionate sort of relationship with sex and how it was supposed to be. And I ended up leaving and we were both just like sobbing at the airport, you know, because I knew that he still to this day, he loves me. We know that we'll love each other forever. I know that I will never have a heartbreak that deep ever again. Like that was like the first cut, you know, it was so powerful, so strong. And it's like, once you go through that, you're like, wow. But right now I'm happy, you know, that I didn't stay with him. I mean, he's completely unfaithful, like totally. Like, so he ended up staying with, they never got married, but they have a kid. And if he could, he would be over here in a heartbeat with me. You know what I mean? So going back to that initial night when we had our session and I told you I've never been with somebody who just wanted to be with me, that I was enough for them. And that's been a reoccurring pattern. All right, guys, how did you enjoy that? I hope you liked it. Really quickly, we're gonna be doing a Q&A at the end of every month over tea. So if you guys have any questions, you guys can write to us at either one of our Instagrams or the Activation Podcast account, which would actually probably be preferable. So that's on Instagram at the Activation Project Podcast. So right around that time, just to tell you what ended up happening with that car situation. My younger sister had just moved in with me from Monterey, Mexico. She had just left the family. She was 15. I became her legal guardian. I was trying to support us by working at Serrano's as a waitress and she became a hostess there. We worked probably like six days a week, double shifts. I would drive us to work. And then one morning I came out, we lived off of Old Torf in Wickersham and my car was gone. And I had just paid $700 to get something fixed on it. So the guy that had raped me had actually given me this car with something broken on it. So I just spent probably like a month of savings to get it fixed. And I actually got it fixed by Jukes Auto. If you guys have it, if you live on the east side or right around Springdale and you know Juke, he is amazing. He was mm-hmm. like in a little garage at that time. He had so much integrity. He fixed my car. like. Shout out to Duke. So I just got it fixed. I come out and the car is stolen. So they had had a couple of other Honda Civics go missing out of that complex. So I made a police report that it was stolen. Couple weeks later, they'd found it outside of Plano, Texas. Basically what had happened was that this guy came with his friend and they stole the car back and then tried to sell it and then it was flagged. So not only did I have the car for a couple months, but they stole it back. I had paid six, $700 to get it fixed. I have no way to get me and my sister to work. So we trudge back up to the house and I just remember getting in the shower, closing the curtain and just breaking down and crying because I didn't want her to see me. Because once again, like my mom, you know, I had to be strong, I had to keep together and I didn't want her to see that I was just so desperately falling apart and I didn't know what to do. I just got approved for like a $15,000 credit card. I don't know how, because this was 2007. And so what do I do? I go and take like a cash advance to buy a car, like a $3,000 car and just effed up my credit for life. So that's how that little issue ended. And then yeah, everything 
thing with happened with Alejandro. I just continued down this pattern of not accepting or not being able to accept a man that would just love me for me. Fast forward to this day and age, here we are. Still haven't found it yet, but am looking. So accepting applications and resumes now. Um, something that I noticed about you that after you did this journey is we went on a bike ride. Oh, right. And right on Cinco de Mayo. I was really excited because no one rides bikes with me. I love it. It's like I do that. It makes my inner child the happiest it's ever been. I feel absolutely free when I ride the bike. I suggest everyone to go ride around Town Lake, which is part of my savior. We went riding around Town Lake. And I just remember telling me this story about the guy from your birthday. Well, well yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so really quickly, I have I had been hooking up with this guy off and on who was in an open marriage. And big surprise there. He awoke something inside of me that I didn't know existed. Like when we had sex for the first time, it was just a game changer. Like instantly I was like, what the hell is this? Like I didn't <laughs> Come, I had an orgasm for the first time since 25 when my sister got me a vibrator for my birthday. And I had maybe, maybe squirt one time during sex. But to come during sex was just like, it was an impossible dream. And he comes in with his like stamina of like a thousand <laughs> black stallions, you know, just like riding through, you know. I was like, Woo! <laughs> And once again, like he just the entire time, words of affirmation, you're so freaking sexy, you're so hot, oh my god, you're so hot, and I was just like, yes, yes, more, 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 touch, 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 touch. So this was going on for a couple of months, but I was also just cowering in shame because I was ashamed that I was doing that. You know, here I am saying how much and badly I want to get married and have kids, but I'm fucking this guy who's married and in an open relationship who is, I mean, literally we're using each other for sex. And like I said, I'm so thankful for the experience and that it happened, but I was also trying to move away from it because I had just had this whole revelation via my sexual history about this very prominent split part of me oh evilia that has been inside and dictating all of these like different situations blacking out becoming a predator and just going on the attack and i would just literally point at guys and be like you here come and like they take off so because i didn't properly integrate after those sessions which she's the queen of integration mm -hmm. and so needed that i was like oh my god i know what the problem is it's a split part in me so i need to get rid of her what do i do do i you know can i throw her off a bridge do i drown her so so that's, you know, like in the metaphor of the West Wing, I locked her in there. And because of that, Christina will, you know. Well, you came to me and you were pretty distraught and you're like, I know in my heart of hearts that I want monogamy and I want kids and I want a life for myself. I want someone to love me. And then you're like, and I can't stop making these horrible decisions where I am, like you said, sleeping with someone that's in an open marriage and I'm unfulfilled and unhappy, but I think that's all I can get. And then you were talking about Oevlia, but you were talking about her in like the worst way possible. And I was like, wait, have you talked to her? Do you know her? Like, do you know her story or what's going on there? She's like, no. And I was like, well, have you ever done parts work before? And she's like, well, you know. So I was like, all right, let's set aside some time to do that. So we did that in your kitchen that day. And we got to meet Oevlia. And basically I had her go into the part of her that was Oevlia. And we talked to her and found out she was a 12-year-old girl that felt unsafe and wanted someone to come and save her when she was being made fun of and harmed um, at this camp. And that her best friend 
left her there by herself. And that this scared little part of her had this need inside of her that was being unmet and has been unmet for a really long time. And, you know, when we started talking to that part, she started crying and, you know, she didn't realize that this part of her that she was being so mean to and trying to cast away was 12 years old. Yeah, so, uh, no, no, yeah, yeah, 12 was when it really formed. But what happened at the camp was I was like eight. And yeah, I was there without my best friend, Becky. I was living in Austin. We were living in Austin for six months at that time in a really dirty, yucky situation. All the kids were incontinent up to like 17 years old. There was lice. It was gross. But at the same time, it was the first time that the adults just kind of let us be kids. Because before that, we would work six days a week with school and then work and taking care of kids and chores and all that stuff or fundraising. So for once, we could just go out on the streets and play with the neighbor kids and we weren't supervised like hawks. And so we were pretty happy there. But then the shepherds were like, no, you will lose your status if you stay in this home. So we moved to Mexico. So uh, before that, I go to this camp and already all the popular homes were in San Antonio. It's totally switched now. And Austin was not the cool place. Austin was weird. It was full of weirdos. And if you came from a home in Austin, you were totally ostracized. So I show up at this camp with huge watermelon caterpillar eyebrows and, you know, just kind of like a little tummy and just so painfully shy, I could barely breathe. And I show up there, Becky's not there. And one morning, so it was when baggy clothes were really in. So I'm wearing this super baggy pair of pants on a really baggy shirt and I'm supposed to clean up after breakfast and I'm collecting all of these empty milk cartons and I must have fit like 12 in my arms, you know, because I was always trying to take the shortcut, do the quickest thing possible. So I'm about to walk off and all the older boys who were kind of like in charge, they must have been 14 or 15, they were just standing there watching me and I see them and I panic and right then my baggy pants just drop to the floor and I have two options. I'm like, okay, either I'm going to drop all of these cartons or I'm going to just waddle off with my pants down at my ankles. So I opt to let go of all of the milk cartons and they go flying everywhere. And I just like pick up my pants and just go running out in tears. So then the next day, one of the girls is like, hey, let's go hang out in the boys room. So we walk in there and there was this super cute boy. He looked like Joseph. Taylor Thomas Jonathan or Jonathan Taylor, Taylor Thomas. Yeah, he was so cute. And I saw that he was just staring at me with this very like peculiar face on. And then all of a sudden he whips out this rubber band and he pulls it back and shoots it and it lands so freaking hard right underneath my eye. And so I'm just stunned and stunned and scared and all the kids start bursting out into laughter and once again I just like run out of there crying so it was a very very traumatic event for me and that's when Oevlia first started to formalize because she's like okay this bitch needs someone to protect her like she's not protecting herself these people don't give a fuck they don't respect her like it's time to like create some street cred. So that's when she started to be created. Now, whenever I recognized her to be the problem and was like, all right, I don't want it anymore. I ended up calling this guy that I had been fucking and that I had recently stopped is around Cinco de Mayo. And I was like, hey, let's go out. We go out. I was drinking a little bit, but I was also just really horny and just like going through this massive confusion. So basically, Oivlia was like, hell no, you're not getting rid of me. Like, I've been by your side this entire time. So what do we do? We end up going into the bathroom at the bar and fucking. And it's like a two-stall bathroom. And the owner of the bar was somebody that I was supposed to be doing business with. 
and I had literally just introduced myself to him. And so we walk out, totally obvious what had just happened. He's standing right outside of the door with his wife and like some other chick that I knew. And I was like, oh God, that's when I like met with Christina and I was like, what's happening help me and so because of that you know we've created this beautiful integration package which is mandatory if you're going to work with us because we believe you have to integrate you have to that's where all the most important work is done and that's when you start to level up and this brilliant genius here has also created like a teachable course so we can replicate it and teach other people how to do this because that's so important you know we need to help as many people as we can so yeah we love you guys each time just gets better and better and better if you want to hear more about a certain topic or something or you're curious about something please reach out to us let us know reach out let us know what you want to know what you don't want to know what you like what you don't like make sure you like share follow and we will see you next time email us at become.com activated at gmail.com. Goodbye.